Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about iron deficiency chlorosis, or IDC, and soybean nutrient management. We have three members of Extension's nutrient management team. Can you each give us a quick introduction? This is Daniel Kaiser, a nutrient management specialist located out of St. Paul. My area of expertise is fertilizer guidelines, um, some of which have involved looking at different management strategies for for IDC in soybean across the western part of Minnesota. And I'm Seth Nave. I'm Extension Soybean Agronomist, and I am also based out of St. Paul, Minnesota. have a similar appointment as Dan. Uh, I deal with everything related to soybean production, uh, including some soybean quality related issues. But I'm uh, one of the things that we've always been interested in is this challenge we've got in Western Minnesota with IDC. So uh, I'm pushing into this nutrient management area a little bit and working on some IDC related uh, issues again this year. I am Michael Junior da Silva, a second year master's student in the NAVE lab, working with management strategies for iron deficiency chlorosis in soybean. Great. So starting off, uh, what are you currently working on for research on IDC? So uh, first of all, I would like to thank you, Paul, for the invitation to participate in this podcast recording to talk a little bit about what we've been researching regarding iron deficiency chlorosis in soybean. So my master's project is titled Managing IDC or Iron Deficiency Chlorosis with Agronomics and Economics, and I'll explain why. So IDC is a major management issue for soybean production in Minnesota because the regions where IDC-prone soils are found, they overlap with the regions where soybean is mostly grown in the state. And IDC is an important problem because most often its symptoms result in significant new reductions. Therefore, due to the large impact of IDC on soybean productions, farmers have adopted several management practices or agronomics or agronomic practices or management strategies to mitigate your losses, such as uh, soil or foliar applications of iron, tillage and drainage, planting companion crops, increasing seeding rates, planting tolerant varieties, among others. However, because different management strategies come at, can come at significant expense to soybean growers, the trade-offs in cost and yield associated with their utilization may not maximize economic returns. Therefore, in order to overcome the problem and ensure profitability, practical and economical solutions are needed. And this is what we are trying to do here. So we designed our study to evaluate three of the most often used management strategies for IDC in soybean from a systems approach or from a practical point of view, which are variety selection. So we are testing two varieties, a moderately tolerant and a highly tolerant variety, two seeding rates, 125 and 175,000 plants per acre, and three rates of iron chelates, zero, two, and four pounds of soy grain per acre. And soy grain is a commercial form of iron chelate. But you may ask, why these three management strategies specifically? Well, first, because they all have been reported to be effective in controlling IDC by previous research. Second, because they are practical from a farmer's standpoint. So let's start with variety selection. So growing a tolerant variety has long been suggested or uh, indicated as the most practical and most important strategy for IDC management. So when deciding which variety to grow, farmers can basically select a cultivar with high tolerance to IDC. Adjusting seeding rates can be effectively done by varying the plant density with a variable uh, rate seeding equipment. 
in pearl application of an iron chelate as uh, a liquid suspension at planting is also a practical option because many farmers, they possess planters equipped with such technology for similar applications on other crops or for the application of other products. Therefore, the first objective of our research is to evaluate the effectiveness of these three management strategies individually and collectively. Secondly, we know that there is a trade-off in cost and yield relative to the adoption of each of these management strategies. For example, today's most tolerant IDC varieties, they come with some yield penalty relative to susceptible varieties or relative to varieties grown elsewhere. Seeding rates, they significantly reduce IDC, but soybean seed has become increasingly expensive. Iron chelates, they have been a game changer for farmers in the most heavily affected areas, but they can be quite costly at effective rates. Therefore, our study also aims to evaluate the impact of variety selection, seeding rate, and iron chelate rates on return of investment or profitability. So overall, we don't want only to test these uh, three management strategies, but we also want to be able to inform farmers which of them will offer the best economic return. So to accomplish the goals of our study in 2021, we planted our experiment at three locations in Western Minnesota on soils where IDC uh, has historically exhibited mild to severe iron deficiencies. So Foxham, Graceville, and Denver's. This year in 2022, we planted only at two locations because we couldn't get to the third location. In addition to vary the intensity of IDC, we planted our field plots in two different areas within each producer field. A hotspot area where IDC is severe and a non-hotspot area where there could be some IDC but where IDC is not as severe as in the hotspot area. So our preliminary results suggest different management strategies to be recommended depending on the fuel location and the intensity of IDC symptoms, which is quite challenging when it comes to making a recommendation. More specifically, we cannot provide the same recommendation for a soybean field in Denver's and a soybean field in Foxham, for example. Furthermore, hotspot areas where IDC is severe require more conservative approaches compared to non-hotspot areas where IDC is less severe. In non-hotspot areas, for example, our treatments showed less effect on soybean yield, meaning that farmers could even grow a less tolerant variety without the need of increasing seeding rate or applying an iron kelly. Differently, in hotspot areas, treatments varied in their effect on IDC. In a hotspot area in Denver, for example, we found that increasing seeding rate of a highly tolerant variety to 175,000 plants per acre significantly increased grain yield compared to the lower seeding rate. However, the same effect was not found for Graceville, Minnesota. So managing IDC is very complicated overall. One of the interesting things I know from some of the work, Seth and Macon, that you've been looking at has been some of the linkage between soybean cess nematode and IDC, uh, because it's one of the things that we were never able to completely nail down um, in some of the last work I did about five years ago. Um, we'd always look for locations, but never really look at cyst counts. And as I started looking into that more and more, um, we're having a lot of issues in areas with some of these management strategies, getting them to work. And then I started looking at cyst counts and those tended to be high. And um, just uh, one of the things, I don't know if either of you two can comment on, just kind of some of your work, if you've been looking at cyst 
uh, nematode because I know when you start looking at some of the hotspots, right, you see the two can go hand in hand. Yeah, I'll chime in. It's it, this is Seth. It's this is a complicated issue, and we I had a um, a student work on this project a, a few years ago, and we had actually some really interesting findings. Uh, we probably could do a better job spreading those around. It's um, but it, it's it's a lot of it's quite an academic point. I guess the good part for farmers is that we don't see a real strong interaction for the symptomology. We were concerned that um, the IDC might flare up and cause more damage damage from the um, SCN or more yellowing and stunting or, and vice versa. That didn't seem to be the case. But what we did find that was really, really, really interesting to me was we found that the SCN continues to reproduce on even really highly stunted soybeans. So even soybeans that are just dead and yellow and ugly and yield 20 bushels uh, or less, still seem to support reproduction of, of this parasite, which is really surprising. You know, when we think of parasite host um, uh, relationships, you don't think that, you think that the, 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 that the, the quality of, of that host is going to be an important factor related to um, reproduction of the, you would think that that might uh, have an impact on the SCN reproduction, but it doesn't seem to. So, I think this might be, in fact, part of why we do see really high numbers of SCN in some of these um, uh, higher pH areas with, with uh, yellow soybeans. It may, it may be uh, partly due to the fact that we've had good reproduction even in those areas with, with poor yielding soybeans. And so it's something, you know, I think we need to maybe think about how we manage this long term. I, I don't know exactly what it does for our research standpoint, because I don't think we have to be as concerned about it from a research standpoint, the interactions. But from a soybean management standpoint, it it probably is worth considering where whether farmers want to continue to grow soybeans in areas where they know they're going to have very low yielding soybeans uh, because of IDC because they're still end up putting a lot of SCN back in the soil. So that's a that's kind of a long-winded answer, but that was our summary of that um, two three-year project we had. I said I just find it interesting. Um, you know, when you look in a lot of the, the information we had, um, you look at you know particular infertile soy green was looking at some of the, the studies, and we just couldn't. I, you know, look at what growers would show for the impact and just be pictures that'd be night and day, you know, dead or alive for some of these areas. And we just weren't seeing a lot of that. And then um, I think the last year, the study that I was doing strip trials at the time, and we had a, a tolerant and susceptible right next to each other in their two row strips, that um, we started to see that more and more when we started looking at sites that had lower cyst counts on it. And as at least able to get some decent performance data, because that's the thing I've struggled with uh, is getting good performance data because the problem with IDC and I mean and Seth uh, and Macon I'm sure you've seen this too you can put it on an area where you think you have it but you aren't necessarily going to know until that crop goes in and I've seen it so many times where it seems like those areas move and it's just the weirdest thing you, you mean you look at them you think well you've got it to find out you talk to the grower it should be right there where you get the iron chlorosis and you have maybe two replicates of your study inside of that area and you got two without and it makes it kind of hard to detect or look at some of your differences out there and, and get some meaningful information out of it. So that's the thing that's really driven me crazy about some of the studies. And I started going to strips, um, you know, a few years back when we started looking at it. So we could then look at um, putting our treatments out over a longer area and wider area and trying to condense our, our downverts, fewer treatments to try to 
get some better data out of it. And um, that tended to work a little bit better for me. But um, it's one of those things. It's a challenge. I mean, it's a challenging problem because, you know, Seth is mentioning the IDC and the, the SCN interaction there. But it's, I mean, even the IDC, it's not anything. I think it's completely well known in terms of why this problem is occurring. I mean, there's a bunch of theories from it. I and mean, I think it's a single single impact that's affecting it. So it's um, one of the things that you think you get it, you know, the uh, answer figured out, but um, like a, a lot of other things we look at with some sort of fertility, we, there's still a lot we, we really need to learn about it moving forward. Well, yeah. And I think that, I think that highlights, you know, some of uh, Mycon's results with the variability in responses by location is that, and that, that is really the real question here is I think when the breeders looked at this, they, they came up with some really good varieties that, that, um, that were really IDC tolerant. And then you put those out and everywhere that they were placed, they did better than the check. So yes, there's, they seem to work everywhere. Um, but I think if you really dove into it, I think if you really looked at the, the minutia of different types of, there's different types of SCN or IDC, sorry, IDC um, uh, tolerance out there in some of these varieties. And some of the varieties do yield, yield a little bit better in, under some of those conditions than others. And we're dealing with, a, you know, a lot of different soil chemistry um, uh, going on uh, relative to these soybean plants. And the various varieties are dealing with it differently. And so that's why we're getting these different kinds of responses. Um, and so it, it, it is really, really, really a huge challenge for us, I think, all, all the way around. Um, uh, back to your um, transect um, idea. I mean, clearly, that's, that's what's working for folks. The Bayer Company, they both of our locations this year are co-located with a Bayer plot where they um, they plant single row plots as uh, as transects through fields so that they can see the the variation through the field and um, those aren't very quantitative because they're not collecting any yield they're just looking at at uh, greenness but for this particular um, you know issue yellowness correlates pretty well with yield and so I think they can you can and farmers can actually go to these sites and get a pretty good handle on how some existing varieties and some new varieties look in some of these um, some of these areas. And by putting a transect through the field, they're able to make sure that they at least have one area uh, where they have uh, some IDC because it, it does uh, seem to move around a lot. Yeah, and that's one of the things that, um, you know, growers, you have a lot of times want to look at some strip trails with and without. And that's the problem when you get like a 30, 40 or 60 foot planter. I mean, it doesn't always, you can't always replicate the same conditions across those areas. And I know I, I tried to do some work, um, that's probably been 10 years ago with some growers and they just couldn't get the same results we could with some of the smaller strip trials. So, I mean, that's the main challenge with it um, is finding the area consistent enough. I mean, we don't necessarily see whole fields that go yellow, although I know up in the valley it can occur. It may be a little bit different in terms of what's happening up there. Um, I know in Yellow Medicine County too, and some of the, I've been over there in some fields too that um, will go completely or mostly yellow. And otherwise, if you get these small pothole areas that are just yellow or on the rims, it isn't really the easiest to do work in some of those fields. So that's been kind of the main challenge. So uh, Seth and Mycon, one of the things I know that does come up is, you know, we are doing testing and you're doing testing. I've done it in the past, looking at different varieties and looking at, um, 
some of these different management scenarios, particularly the inferral chelates. Um, you know, one of the things I've seen consistently is that I get a larger yield response to my higher yielding, maybe my less tolerant variety, but then the maximum yield always tends to be less than I can get without the product with my, um, with my tolerant variety. I don't know if you've been seeing some of the same things because it always seems to me that the recommendation I'm usually giving to growers is starting with a tolerant variety. Um, it may not necessarily get the uh, return when it comes to some of the iron chelates that you would with the other one, but still it sets you up for a higher yield potential. It's, it's kind of general, it's what, generally what I've seen, but again, I don't know how some of these newer varieties, if they're getting better um, or not um, in terms of the, the maximum yield potential. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a start on that one, Mike, and then you can jump in. It's, it, you know, and that's a challenge. Another challenge from a research standpoint is what, you know, what varieties we use as indicators for that. And I mean, we can always choose bad enough varieties that look awful that we can improve. Um, and so um, our, for our particular study, we use basically two, you know, kind of a, a tolerant and a very tolerant variety. And so then we're looking at those because that's what we think that farmers should be planting. So the question is how, how much tolerance um, do you need to, to provide? But yes, I, I, I agree that we can always make those bad ones look better. So the question for us is really how much value do we get out of each of those pieces? And from a practical standpoint, my personal feeling is that uh, if you could, we, we need to know how close we can get those. I think your, to your point is how close can you get those other varieties to the maximum yield by adding soy green? And, um, you know, because it's a lot easier to, um, for farmers with current technology to do a variable rate um, in furrow operation, even if that variable rate is just flipping off the, on and off the switch or kicking the button uh, as they go through the field than it is to do a variable variety um, uh, planting in a field. So we think that that's, you know, that's a much more achievable goal is to either on and off with an iron chelate or else change rates of the iron chelate as they go across the field. So that's that's our angle that we're kind of hoping for with, with this. But if we find out that there's real heavy interactions that in some areas you need to have both, uh, then we're just going to have to deal with that and, and, and talk about things a little bit differently, I guess. I don't know if you have anything to add, Mike. On. Yeah, um, this is something we found uh, in our preliminary results from last year is that uh, sometimes only a tolerant variety might seem enough to control IDC in some areas, but then you move to other areas and then the tolerant variety itself is not enough and also uh, suffers a lot from IDC. So that means you need a second management strategy. Uh, would it be increasing the seeding rate or uh, applying soy grain? Um, yeah, so it depends the area, different results, very complicated. You know, so one of the, you know, I think uh, we're, we're, I'm certainly no um, soil scientist, soil chemist, um, uh, but one of the, you know, the, the confounding factors, I think, that are and that certainly go together here is this question about residual nitrate and uh, and water. And the way I look at IDC is a lot of this is mediated by water movement in that soil profile. And, and that's very complicated. It's moving. It's doing a lot more than just moving uh, salts and, and other uh, ions around in the soil. It's also creating you know, anoxic and hypoxic areas in the soil. It's affecting rooting physically. It's, it's, um, 
Uh, and the timing and movement of that relative to the timing of, of the soybean plant, I, I tend to, my personal gut feeling is that if there's one thing that, that we can look at as an indicator or driver is, is, is this water status in the soil. And, and um, I think it's going to be very, I mean, if we, knew, if we knew enough, it would still be very, very complicated, but it seems like that's what's really driving a lot of this. And typically when a normal planted soybean, typically this time of year, we get some really hot weather, like we're going to have next week this later this week and we're um we're thinking that um you know maybe that'll help push these soybeans through some of this yellow um nests that we get out there that's a lot of what we get in early july and a lot of years so just don't know how much of that is increased plant growth and increased rooting or whether that's um you know actually pushing some of that water down um down deeper in the soil or else bringing uh bringing more up through the plants and ripping through it in the soil in the in the water in the plant excuse me so anyway a lot there but it's it's part of the my conundrum with this is is this question about um water and um and uh and nitrogen and i guess my whole point with that introduction i guess that was an introduction was that in my kind study we actually use extra uh n on the plants uh in a in half of the plots to to actually create a little bit more of a hot uh, of a variation in how much idc we have and he's even noted that we have a variation in how those soils respond to that extra n so some soils that extra N really creates more IDC symptomology and in some areas it doesn't. So uh, it's not, it's not going to be as simple as, as taking soil tests and determining whether we're going to have IDC. It's not, there's not, we're not able, to, I don't think to be able to do N rate tests out there for, and determine, you know, the thresholds for IDC. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's just very, very challenging. Well, one of the things I've been hearing or getting more questions on have been some granular forms. Uh, uh, traditionally, um, the majority of the ortho-ortho EDDHA products, which are the most effective products, um, have come in a dry form that you've had to turn into a liquid or in a liquid form that you can use directly. I think that's, that's kind of what you've been using is the um, Soy Green AST, which is the already mixed product. Um, so that's been one that we've had some questions on, um, you know, anecdotally, just listening to some of the information, some of the consultants, there seems to be some positives with the particular, um, some of these products. Uh, the main thing, if you look at their use, they're still recommended for use as a band application near the seed. So it's the same thing we're seeing or recommending with a um, liquid form, because one of the things about the EDDHA uh, products, particularly the ortho-ortho EDDHA, which is the most effective form, is that it is mobile. Uh, so it will you know, move. So you want to have it near the seed as much as possible and have it concentrated where those roots are in order to be able to take up. So, you know, a couple products out there for granular products, the Soy Green Granular 2.4. Uh, Wilbur Ellis has a product out as well. Uh, the main thing on all these products, whether it's a liquid or a dry source, is you want to look at where the iron chelate is derived from. So just looking at the um, soy green granular 2.4, it says, um, you know, derived from iron EDDHA, and then it gives a split that 85% of the chelated iron is ortho-ortho EDDHA, and the, the other 15% is um, an isomer, uh, or it's slightly different, it's an ortho-para EDDHA, which is less effective. So that's really what's important when looking at a lot of these products is the percent of the chelated form of iron that's in that ortho-ortho form. 
Uh, there were also some other questions about EDDHSA and some other um, different chelates. Uh, really, if we look at where we have the most effectiveness, it's been with the EDDHA. So depending on what product you have, there's different ones out there. So soy green isn't the sole source. The main thing is when you look at application rates, they're likely going to vary because a lot of that is because of the variation they have in that ortho ortho eddha in the product so that's kind of the main thing with with many of these is to just look at these and just look at what the composition is uh, some of them will say i think that the versatile from wilbur else i'm just looking at the label now it says a hundred percent of the or that the drive from uh, iron eddha but it doesn't give you the isomer breakdown so you don't really know with some of these in terms of the effectiveness of it. So that's kind of the main thing is when you look at these chelates, all these chelates aren't, they're not all made, made identical. So that's one of the important things is um, just to kind of look at some of these. And they may still be effective. It just may take a variation in the rate for them to work. So I think that's kind of the new thing because in the past we didn't have any options for growers that didn't have uh, liquid infro or maybe they were using a air seeder for... Um, fertilizer application uh, the interesting thing though i find with these products is if you look at um they again they still recommend inferro or some different placement methods that are still banned placement so that may still limit a grower in terms of what they can do so this isn't a product you can go out and broadcast apply like you would a, a standard fertilizer and see the same results i mean it's still something that you have to look at um going in and, and putting it um and concentrating it near the seed so that's been the main thing came up i know some questions from consultants this spring i haven't looked at it maybe something really we look at here in the future doing some tests on because i really don't know how much about it other than it's it's pretty much the same source it's just a little bit different carrier in terms of how they're applying it to the plant yeah there's there's a lot there i think just to kind of summarize from and you know a simple agronomist standpoint i think you gotta you gotta look at that concentration of your product because there's a lot of generic versions out there and so farmers are probably going to have to crank up their rates a little bit uh, when they're using some of those products and especially if they don't know exactly what those uh, the composition is uh, the other piece i think that you brought up towards the end is something that we talked a lot about 10 and 15 years ago was this kind of population effect um, and and linear distribution of the products and then the seed and this this pertains to both the seed and the furrow as well as the iron is that, you know, the, those things, the, the soy, the soybeans tend to help themselves in that row combat this problem. Uh, and so the, the, the shorter, the inter row spacing between those plants is the, the, the more, um, the more value we get out of those as an iron, um, deficiency chlorosis, uh, mechanism or, or, um, 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 you know, a method to, to battle this thing. So that's why we, we originally recommended wider rows and higher seeding rates. Uh, and, and today I think it's still our general recommendation that when we're planting in, in wider or in very narrow rows or with air seeders that the population may not have as much benefit as we get it with wide rows. Uh, but then with the iron chelates, the same thing, Dan, is that, um, when we're putting these things down in the, in, with an air seeder, they're getting pretty well dispersed and, you know, that iron gets a long ways away from each in, individual seed. So. We just have to be, I don't, I wouldn't say not to do it, but I think we have to definitely be a little bit more careful, especially as we move to an air seeder or um, some sort of really narrow row system. 
Well, it's one of the things, too, that I've had questions on rate-wise, too, and with soy grain specifically. You know, you see the company talking about, you know, two, three, four-pound rates with some of the liquid rates. And, um, you know, from what I've seen with a lot of our strips, two pounds typically was sufficient. Um, I mean, maybe you get some hot spots that you need higher rates, but the higher rates you might need, you know, with some of the other products, too. So, again, that's one of the things to watch out for is that, um, you know, the concentration of, of the EDDHA, the ortho-ortho isomers in particular, is important. So, again, it's one of the things to pay attention to with these because you may not, you may be putting the same rate, maybe a material on two different products, but you might see vastly different results just because of the makeup of the products. And it does make a big difference when it comes to um, IDC, um, just the amount of uh, available iron there, you'll see it pretty quickly. It does, it, this, you know, it's a, this is a real tough thing to do research on and, and, and farmers would have a really hard time quantifying a lot of these effects, but clearly it's something that farmers can play around with a little bit in their own farms and they can vary rates um, as long as they flag those. And, um, you know, we know that greenness really relates quite well to yield. And so uh, farmers can get a pretty good handle on it. I know every year we've got farmers that, you know, have a plug nozzle in a row or something like that. They don't get the product on and, or they have, they skip uh, for some other reason, or there's some other issue, or they change product middle of the day and they have a different um, greenness or yellowness on the side. So farmers should really try all that they can to, to best utilize those either accidental situations or, or develop um, a little plan to do some of that. And if they have to test, test a couple products, uh, do it, buy some two and a halfs or, um, you know, a, a small quantity of, of another product and put it in there in strips along with it. And the good thing is they don't have to wait till harvest to know whether it worked or not. They can go out and pretty much take a look at, at yellowness and greenness out in the field. Seth, I think you hit on this a little bit already, but with the late planting and dry conditions following last year's harvest, do you anticipate any impacts on IDC this year? I'll start with the late um, planting piece of this. Um, uh, that's an interesting question, and I, you know, I guess I alluded to this earlier in the fact that it's it's hard to predict IDC. You know, the soybeans do come out of IDC later in the season, so one would expect that um, uh, that planting later could really reduce, and we know that. Too much water early on is stressful to the soybeans, but it's amazing late planted soybeans will give us pretty good uh, IDC symptomology. In fact, in the old days, the breeders uh, would identify locations to do all their research by just going out to, to farmers' fields that were yellow and they'd have the farmer till up an acre and then they'd plant their studies in, in June or early July just to see. Uh, so it's, it's very possible to get those symptomology even, even quite late. And so, um, so it's, it's, it's quite surprising. And then from on the other side of this kind of this nitrogen standpoint, I think we can have a longer discussion about that, but it's, you know, we definitely had more carryover N last year. And again, as I mentioned earlier, this, uh, the N effect is probably quite, um, um, unpredictable, uh, but overall, I would say more N um, definitely pushes us towards more IDC symptoms um, for sure. Whether there's any kind of a threshold or minimum or maximum amounts, I think we could debate. But um, definitely, there's there's no question that um, that more N is definitely or and excess N is definitely part of the equation in, in most of the fields that we're looking at around around the country. Yeah, to me, it'd be interesting, Seth, to kind of look at whether or not there's a threshold out there for nitrate, because it's generally, you put a high rate on or you have nothing in for a lot of the plots, but, you know, is there a tolerable point at which, you know, the soybean 
won't see a negative impact. I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I think there's been some work looking at different rates, but, um, you know, the hard part about this, it's got to be as, as nitrate um, because generally the, the way that works is nitrate's taken up and bicarbonate should be released as nitrate's being taken up to kind of balance the charge. And bicarbonate's really the problem in the soils. Um, and if you get wet, saturated soils, it tends to build just because carbon dioxide forms bicarbonate and it tends to build and not release. And uh, if you try to measure it, it's not stable, so you can't directly measure it. So it's kind of one of those things that, um, you know, it's kind of a hidden thing that, you, you know, it's probably there, it's probably impacting it, but you just don't know that overall effect. But uh, looking at some of the data that we had last fall from two-foot soil samples, it doesn't surprise me to see things being bad this year just because it seemed like there's a lot of nitrate hanging around. It's, we had a dry year and it didn't go anywhere, so... It just one of those things to be careful for, and there's not a lot you can do because the, the plant's going to take up nitrate if it's there. So, I mean, trying to minimize it, at least over applications in the corn, is probably the best you can do. But then you have a year like last year, and there's the year effect is so much greater. So, I mean, there's we'll, we'll see kind of how things as, as things progress here. You may see it yellow and go away, um, or you may see it yellow and kind of stick around for a while. Only time really will tell. Um, Really, and that's kind of the issue with it is once we see that occur, we, there's not a lot we can do. I know there's always some talk about going with foliar applications, and we know that the um, the EDDHA, the ortho-ortho products foliar applied, will penetrate the leaf and will green the plant up. The issue a lot of times is that you have to do this before the plant yellows. So once it yellows, it isn't necessarily anything you can bring it back from. So that's been kind of the challenge with rescue applications is, you know, are there any options? Because a lot of times it has to be done before you know the problem's going to be there. So it isn't the easiest thing to do. A lot of times you just you stress to growers, try to set yourself up as best you can. And um, the tolerant variety is really the best you can do. And then having some of that upfront application is really kind of an extra layer of defense with uh, some of these, these particular products. And then just hopefully it won't go yellow. But um said mother nature controls a lot of that so it's not always that um we can figure out when and where that's going to occur anything else growers should know about soybean nutrient management well we're working on a few things um i think we updated a, a few things in the spring um regarding the phosphorus guidelines nothing major um i'm still working on some projects looking at sulfur um, i don't think there'll be any major changes out of any of that and debating um, when we get done some of the changes with corn, with potassium guidelines, whether or not we'll have some recommendations. So there's some things maybe to watch out for with that. I also um, am in the process of updating the IDC pub. I wanted to include some of the information that Seth has been working on with the nematode work um, for the update we had back in, I think it was around 2012. So um, that's kind of one of the things that hopefully this year we'll have that out to growers to kind of look at uh, some of the new information that, that's available to them just based on some of the current research. All right. Any last words from the group? Well, I think the, the, the uh, ultimate last word is it depends on what the weather happens uh, or what the weather does the rest of the summer. And that's the big question, right? So we've, we thought it was going to quit raining and then here it keeps on raining for us. So um, from an IDC perspective, that certainly could continue to drive this thing and we could, could ride this for quite a while. On the other hand, we know that um, dry weather doesn't cure it either. Um, so um, it, it really depends, but um, I guess from the big, big soybean perspective, as a soybean agronomist, I'd say, remember, it all happens in August and early September. So that's what really seems to define our yields. Uh, we have to have the 
we have to have a decent plant out there at that time to take advantage of it. That's that's why we're trying to minimize IDC now is so that we have a nice, big, vigorous plant. We're probably going to have something out there, but we just want we want to create as large and uh, of a plant as we can that time of year so that we can maximize maximize um, good growing conditions towards the end of the year. And that's that's where we'll get the big yields. All right. That about does it for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.